Would you remain standing, and if you have a Bible with you, would you pick it up and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is our passage for this morning's message. Hear what God's word says, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Would you pray with me one more time? Let's bow. Father, we prayed through song just now that you would show us Christ. We also pray that you would show us Christ's church, the body. Lord, we thank you for the unity that you've given us, for what we share in the experience of the gospel, what we share in mission, what we share in belief, what we share simply in you. We pray that would be a greater reality in our experience and in our planning, in our actions after we leave this place than it was before we came in. Knit us together. Give us your love. Give us your love for the world. Lord Jesus, show us your ways. Help us to trust you when things are hard. Help us, Lord, to seek good days and to love life in you for your glory. Do it now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, our passage for this morning begins like we're picking up somewhere in the middle of a letter or a book, and sure enough, we are. You can tell that not just because the reference is chapter 3, verse 8, and not chapter 1, verse 1, but because chapter 3, verse 8 begins with that word, finally. Finally, all of you. This is now in a number of times that Peter has addressed different people or different kinds of people in this letter. Let's back up one more time and see some of these things. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. You probably know exactly what I'm going to do if you've been here in recent weeks. You may be tempted to yawn right now or check out or do something on your phone. Bear with me. Let's, if we have any familiarity with this at all, let's thank God for it, that we're seeing how his word fits together and we're seeing once again that Bible verses are not just floating bits of information but come together in a whole message with a purpose and a context. And so we remember from chapter 2 verse 12 where Peter addressed all Christians or the one specifically he was writing to there in those Roman provinces as sojourners in exiles. They're beloved and they're sojourning. They're exiled. And then in the very next verse, he gets specific with what they should do. These sojourner exiles should subject themselves to the governing authorities. 
Then in chapter 2, verse 18, we saw he speaks to servants. They should subject themselves to their masters or those who are under anyone in occupation. They should subject themselves to those who are over. In chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. And then we saw last week, verse 7 of chapter 3, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in honor and love. And now, verse 8, finally, all of you, and by all of you, he means the church, and not just the church, but again, the churches. The letter was written to these Christians scattered in various Roman provinces in first century, in the first century time. But now as he deals with this in verse 8 and following this topic of the church, the all of you, he's showing Christians how to relate to each other in these societies called churches like Desert Springs. He's been talking about spheres of life, hasn't he? He's been helping us think about and, and how to live in society, under a government, in a culture, in a city. He's helping us how to think about and go about our work. He's helping us think about and how to live in marriage. And now he's helping us think about and how to relate together in the church. Now, don't miss one of the maybe most obvious things that could be easily overlooked, one of the broadest implications of what Peter's been doing in these verses over the last several weeks that we studied them. Peter's instructions for these different spheres implies that the gospel penetrates every corner of life. The gospel penetrates every corner of life how we live in society and how we work and what the home looks like and, of course, what we do in the church. That means that Christianity is not just a, an add-on. It's not just a helpful add-on. Life is good and Christianity can make it better. Or life is hard, but it can take it from a 2 on a scale of 1 to 10 up to a 4 maybe. No. Christianity, many think today, is like an enhancer, like steak is good, but salt and pepper make it better. It enhances the steak, but not with Jesus. Jesus is a total game changer. In him is a whole new world that we Christians are already in, though it's unseen. We're between two worlds. It's like the Matrix, but with nicer clothes. It's not quite as depressing. It's the other side of the wardrobe into Narnia. It's putting on the ring and seeing the unseen that was there all along. That's what it means to be in Jesus and to be part of his kingdom. And one of the ways that Jesus brings us into his kingdom and does a saving work in us, one of the ways that Jesus is a total game changer is that he isn't just bringing us to himself, but he's putting us together. He's bringing us to each other. We're united to Christ in this new kingdom through the gospel of the cross, but in it we're also united to each other. Christ and his body, the church, are inseparable. They're tied together almost like it's the same thing at times. 
So, in John 21, Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I do, Lord. He says, okay, feed my sheep. And that exchange happens three times. You love me? Feed my sheep, my people. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches the disciples that what you've done to the least of my disciples, you've done it unto me. And when Saul, before he was Paul, when he was persecuting Christians in Acts 13, the Lord showed up in glory and blinded him, knocking him off his horse. The Lord said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, the church and Jesus are inseparably tied. So the church was more important than you think. I'm a pastor. The church is more important than I think. The church is certainly way, way, way more important than what we live like. So what does Peter say to the church about being the church and relating to each other in the church? In short, he says that the church is called to bless and to be blessed. I want to flesh that out in four ways this morning. And we'll take a good bit of time on the first one. Yes, I know that's usual Ryan Kelly preaching fashion. But it's even more purposeful than usual this time because because this first thing, as we'll see, uh, assumes a whole lot that we can get from from other parts of the Bible. He's talking about the church, and he gives us five directives of what we should do in relating to each other. But in other parts of the Bible, we get those kind of commands with a whole lot of church theology wrapped around them. And so we should talk about, about those sorts of things as well. Peter's merely assuming them. So the first of these four are relationships within the church. Our relationships within the church, those are shown to us in verse 8, five different ways that our attitudes and our actions towards each other should function in the church. The first being, have unity of mind. Unity of mind, not just unity of hearts or unity of experiences or, or not just simply getting along, but unity of mind, unity of truth, unity of thought. So unity not by ignoring or downplaying beliefs. We sometimes hear doctrine divides. But not from Peter do we hear that. Not from Paul do we hear that kind of thing. No. They would say this is the hub. This is the stuff that we rally around and and glory in. It's the glue that holds us together. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body, the church, there is one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice all the ones there. One God, one baptism, one faith, one calling, one Lord, one spirit, one body of the church. These are the essentials that we rally around. We elevate their importance and and their attention in our unity. Now that means more than simply that we should hold to some essentials together in the church. It means that the unity of the church rests ultimately not on our shared experiences and purposes or 
our shared feelings or sentiments. It's not rooted in ultimately time spent together or things done with each other. It's theological at root. Our unity in the church springs from an experience in Christ, first and foremost, before it ever has anything to do with experiencing each other. It's about relating to Christ, first and foremost, before it ever has anything to say about how we relate to each other. It's rooted in the eternal gospel of God's grace. You see, we love each other because he loves us. He loves you, so I love you. We love each other because he first loved us. We're connected to each other because we're connected to him, even united to him. So yes, Christians do get together like this. We share life together. We get in each other's homes and we share meals together. We speak truth to each other. We put up with each other. We love each other. But these things are not what ultimately binds us together or else any club or society would be basically the same thing as a church. There's something else. We Christians have a mysterious and mystical connection with each other because of our connection with Christ. That means that our time together and care for each other is not the root of our unity. It's the fruit of our unity. And God himself and his work in us is that objective, unchanging reality that binds us together. I think that's what's meant by these just... Three short words, unity of mind. And that's not a small point. That's not just a theoretical point or a theological picky point. It's, it's enormously practical. That's what keeps us together. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us in bond together. Not my performance, not your performance. Not because, well, I can put up with you this week, I don't know about next week. We're in him, so we're together. And it's only this kind of unchanging and eternal divine foundation that can keep us from our, our selfish interests and in looking at relationships simply to milk out what we need or want. And instead, it, it, this truth keeps us focused on our mutual love for God and our love for what he loves. We should also have sympathy, though. Literally, it means to suffer with. To suffer with emotionally. You see, we enter into each other's experiences of joy and sorrow. That's what Paul says in Romans 12 when he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You can't fake that, can you? The rejoicing part, yeah, you kind of can. The weeping part? I mean, you try to like fake cry with your brother who's sad, your sister who's sad, they're going to know. It's not comforting when you fake cry. Weep with those who weep means actually weep because you're sad. You're riding a roller coaster with them. You're on it with them. Your emotions are tied up with theirs because your experiences are tied up with theirs. Your care for their well-being is tied up with their care for their well-being. We're to feel what each other feels. That's high and lofty. That's hard. That seems otherworldly. And indeed it is. That's the point. Just like it is with brotherly love. 
It's not just show love or act like you love or love in some simple, plain way, doing nice things, but this is brotherly love. It's tapping in to that mystical, that that mysterious connection that we share in Christ because we're of the family now. We act like family towards each other because we are family and we are family of the deepest kind. We've been born again. We've been born again from above, born into a new family, born into a whole new life, born into a whole new world, born into a a, a new fatherhood. And hence, a new inheritance. We share that inheritance together. It's been bought for us by Jesus' precious blood. And the Jesus who bought us is also our brother. We share him. We're now brothers and sisters in that sort of intimate sharing sense. And so, we should love each other like, like the very best of what we know a family could be. And then to the tenth power. What might that look like? Well, turn back to 1 Peter 1. He's talked about brotherly love once before. In 1 Peter 1, we see clearly what we've already said, that this kind of love comes from God, and it's supernatural. It's part of being born from him. As it says in verse 22, with a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And then just a few verses later, we read some specifics about what that shouldn't look like, what we put away to pursue that. We put away chapter 2, verse 1, all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These have no place in any healthy human family. These have no place, especially in God's spiritual family. Or turn over to chapter 4, one more passage in 1 Peter that talks about love, and here love is defined very clearly, very specifically. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, vehemently, vigorously, strenuously. And then, since love covers a multitude of sins. So there's a a way in which we see what love is and what it looks like, what it does. It covers sins, just like God covered our sins in Jesus. So we get to do his love thing when we cover others' sins. We show hospitality to one another, and we do it without grumbling. We we give each other food. We have each other over. We spend time in each other's lives. God has supremely shown hospitality to us, not with a meal, but with grace and every gift of that grace. So we get to imitate him as we do that. He's given us a gift, a spiritual gift. And Peter says, as each has received a gift, he should use it to serve one another. Our spiritual gifts are not meant simply to be an exercise of our own self-fulfillment and feeling good about doing something and accomplishing and being used or being noticed. But these gifts are for others. So whoever speaks, let him speak oracles of God. And whoever serves, 
Let him serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's brotherly love. It's many more things, but it's at least that. We should also have a tender heart towards each other back in chapter 3, verse 8. A tender heart. Be compassionate. Again, these are feelings of concern and care for each other that, that can't be trumped up, that can't be faked. We can look like we're tender-hearted and not be. What Peter's getting at here is something of the heart that works itself out, not merely acting, but not only feeling. It's both. And of course, that means knowing each other, right? It means life shared together. I can have compassion on what you're going through simply because I know you, I know the difficulty of your circumstances, and I know what we share in Christ. I know what that unity of mind is. But there's something more about compassion and tenderheartedness when I am with you in this experience of pain and difficulty. We need to know each other like that. We need to know what others are going through. You can't get to know everyone in this size of a church at that level, but you should know some whether through a community group or other kinds of intimate relationships. Maybe you, you meet with someone weekly for coffee and you talk and you open up and you, you dig deep. Maybe you should sign up for our prayer force email list so you can be praying for needs in the body that come up. Be praying and, and getting updates on how those are going. We need to pray for each other. We need to listen to each other. We need to sit with each other. We need to endure each other. Part of what Peter's saying here with all these things, including a tender heart, is that we've got to put bitterness aside and we can't heap up wrongs. Love covers a multitude of sins. We flee gossip if we're going to pursue and cultivate a tender heart towards each other. We assume the best, not the worst. We don't read into motives. We have a humble mind. Probably no place in Scripture is humility described best than described better than Philippians 2. There Paul says, Hey Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind, unity, having the same Love, brotherly love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of this selfless, sacrificial humility and servantry. He was equal with the Father, and yet he took on the form of a human being and a servant human being, and he served all the way to the cross for us. He, who more than any of us could look out for his own interests, he who more than any of us could count himself more important than us didn't. So we shouldn't. Now, on the whole, these five things in verse 8 of 1 Peter 3 assume that togetherness is central to God's plan of salvation. These things cannot be conceived of, let alone achieved, 
alone on a deserted island. It's like the one and others. You need a partner. You can't love one another by yourself. You can't pray for one another by yourself. The one another implies another. It's inherently relational. I think we get that. We're okay with that. Let me flesh this out, though, a little, a little deeper level, maybe, by uh, imagining that some people's conception of the Christian life is something like a, a diver, a deep-sea diver, who gets his air through a hose to a, a boat above. I know some people use tanks, and that's one option, but imagine with me, there's a hose, right? The oxygen is up above, connected to a hose, and there are other divers around when we dive like this, we can see them, we're, we're relating to them in some kind of way, but we're not reliant on each other as we dive together. If the Christian life is like diving and this air hose connects me to God, where I commune with him and I get from him, I get what I need, then we could say one of the diving boats we use sometimes is the prayer boat. We pray. And the hose connects us through prayer to God. We get oxygen and air coming down from God as we pray to him and listen for him. Other times we dive off of the boat of the Bible. We commune with God and we get oxygen from him through the Bible boat, we could say. And as we do prayer in Bible, we sometimes look around at others in the ocean with us and we see that they're doing it too. And maybe we wave, maybe we say, okay, I found out in first service that divers don't do thumbs up because that means go up. So they say, okay, you can see him doing it, but if you weren't there, it wouldn't really matter for me. I don't need you. I'm doing my thing. I'm glad you're doing it with me, but we've got our hoses connected up above. Where is the church in this picture? Well, there's actually a way to go about that as a diver too. Sometimes we dive off the, the church boat, we could say. It's like the love boat, but, but more religious. <laughs> so maybe for some, church is just another one of these boats. It's just a, a different one. It's a different place. And in this church thing, I commune with God. I tap into this oxygen hose. Is, is that what's happening right now? Are we just here this morning because that's when the church boat meets? It's church boat time. And so you come and you plug in. But really, you could have done this alone. According to the Bible, yes, we are to get our oxygen from the Bible directly and alone at times. And yes, according to the Bible, we're to pray and commune with God and get oxygen from him. We're to dive off the prayer boat. And the church also can be a direct infusion of God's divine, glorious oxygen as we, as we worship him. But also, here's what's missing. Also... The air of truth and grace should flow to us through people, through the other divers. And that's where the analogy breaks down, as it should. Divers aren't connected to the oxygen boat and to each other for oxygen. 
divers under normal circumstances don't get oxygen from above and then share it with each other. But in the Christian life, that's exactly what we do. We're in this thing together. I am my brother's keeper and vice versa. God's grace flows from you to me and vice versa. As Paul Tripp says, we are all instruments in the Redeemer's hands for the rest of the church, for growth in others. We grow together, Ephesians 4 says. We're being built together into the church and we're being grown up together in him, each part doing its part. Most of us think of Christian growth simply in terms of individuals. Am I growing? Is she growing? Are you growing? Rarely do we ask the question, are we growing? And are we growing together? Is that discernible? Do we care? The church grows together. As we've said before, the plan, God's plan is not to grow you with the help of the church. God's plan is to grow the church with the help of you. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for Christ's church. Again, we often approach these issues wondering where our, our gifts will be used. We, we maybe get to a new church and wonder whether this church will meet this need that I have. Or we come to a new church and we say, I wonder if this church will use this gift that I have. And perhaps we should be saying, where does the church have needs and how can I help? Not thinking of ourselves first, but others. Yes, this is hard. This is a high calling, I realize, but it's not a naive one. It's not Pollyanna. These five things in verse 8 assume that this world is still broken. It's still hard. We have to show sympathy and tenderheartedness with each other. They assume the reality and presence of sin because these five things are pushing against things like the flesh and our independence and our self-reliance and our selfishness and our pride and protection of self. These things are ongoing. They assume that this work is ongoing. And this is one reason why it's important as much as possible to stay at a church for a very long time. It's a good thing. I plan to be at Desert Springs Church as long as I possibly can. You know why? You know my warts better than the next church would. And I need that. And you need that. Too often in the church, we're there for a while. And these five attitudes in verse 8 start to appear and look genuine. Oh, but then it gets too close. It's too personal. It's too messy. I'm offended. And then they move on to another church. And that other church looks so much better because they're not close up yet. They're further away. They're on the outside a little bit looking in. In the warts that they saw close up in their last church, now you can't see them so far away in the new church. Just wait. They might be different warts, but there are warts. All right, we could say more, but that's the relationships within the church. And that's just one verse. As I promised, we will move more quickly through the rest. Secondly, Peter directs us towards this. The response 
to the world. Relationships in the church, the response to the world. Verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, verse 9 takes a slight turn since it's not about the church relating to the church. It's about the church relating to the outside world and specifically non-Christians in their opposition or even persecution of Christians in society or in personal relationships. We know that because of the words like evil and reviling in verse 9. These are specific terms in 1 Peter. These are terms for that, that problem, that question of facing persecution in a, in a world that doesn't like what you believe and in the stands that you take. Now, of course, whatever this verse 9 says about mistreatment from the world and how Christians are to respond to it, it is true, if not more so, that we should respond the same way to any mistreatment we face in the family of God. Okay, keep that in mind as we work through verse 9. Yes, it's talking about Christians in the world and facing persecution from the world, but at times we're maligned in the church, we're reviled in the church. Sometimes we revile the reviling in the church. We, we miss countless opportunities to bless each other in the church. And so whatever Peter says here about living in a world where the world is against you and persecuting you, the same is true in his advice for how we should respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ who sometimes hurt us. But back to the world, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When wronged or opposed or maligned, we don't pay back with the same currency. We're content to know that justice will never be met for sin until the coming of Christ. You realize that? Justice will never be met in all those wrongs you've done and all those times you've been wronged until the coming of Christ. Don't repay as if you were the repayer. Don't judge as if you were the judge. Don't say to Jesus, Shove over. Let me take some time on that throne. Hurry it up. I don't think you're going fast enough on fixing this. Well, it doesn't mean that we take everything. It doesn't mean that you never send back a really bad raw steak. I had to do that four times recently. I, I usually never do that kind of thing, but it was just, it was a, it was a miracle how bad they got this steak wrong. And it wasn't evil. And so I gently, nicely said, ah, you know, this thing's mooing. Can you put it back on the flame for a bit? Ah, this thing's a crusty booger. Is there anything? Can you, can you decook it somehow? This is bad. Okay, so, so no, we Christians, we don't take everything. But, but the closer any difficulty gets to being persecuted as a Christian for being a Christian... And the closer it gets to a response being a testimony for Christ to non-believers, then 
all the more we should simply take it on the chin for Christ. We should eat it. We should turn the other cheek. That's the way Jesus described it, and that's what Jesus showed us. He's our example in this. We'll see that in the rest of 1 Peter more than once. Jesus is our ultimate example in this. We look to him on the cross when his enemies hated and maligned and, and, and reviled and, and beat. He didn't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges. Peter said that in the last chapter. Jesus is an amazing example, but he's far from just an example of this. On the cross, Jesus wasn't just the object of sin. He was the object of judgment, divine judgment for us. On the cross, he wasn't just putting up with sin. He was putting away sin. As Peter will say in verse 18 of this chapter later on, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous one suffering for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. He bore our payment and our shame so that we can be forgiven, not just forgiven, but brought near, reconciled to him. And in him, when we have that kind of forgiveness, when that's been fixed, we can take it. And not just take it, but even bless. Verse 9 says that. On the contrary, bless. It'd be hard enough just to take it when reviled and wronged, beaten, persecuted, when we face evil. But Peter says, on the contrary, bless. Bless here in the New Testament especially means not just to speak well of others or to wish well for them or even to pray a blessing or, or, or somehow to like bless them with the sign of the cross in our hand. No. It has gospel implications in the New Testament when we bless. I mean, a blessing in the New Testament is a, it's the saving blessing of being in Christ. And so we bless by wishing them well, by praying for them, yes, but also by sharing with them the word of gospel blessing. It has to do with preaching. We'll talk about that next week. Next week we'll get into chapter 3, verse 15, where we should be ready for those who ask us of the hope that's in us. We should have an answer for them, and yet we should answer in gentleness and, and respect. We'll talk about that next week. But back to verse 9, this is what we're called to. We've been called to this kind of ministry. Our calling is comprehensive. It wasn't just when we were drawn into the Lord, when he opened our eyes to see and opened our hearts to receive. That calling is a comprehensive calling. So Paul can say, you've been called to suffer. And here Peter can say, you've been called to not return evil for evil, to not revile when reviled. You've been called to bless that you might obtain a blessing. A blessing that's not earned. It looks like that. That you may obtain a blessing. That you get something in the end if your meekness and your gentility and your ability to bless others is good enough, then you'll get a blessing. It sounds like that, but no. The ESV says obtain a blessing. 
A better translation would be inherit a blessing. To inherit a blessing is to receive a gift. It's not something we earn, something we're born, born into. So we're forgiven by Jesus and we go his way and in love we bless like him and part of his saving package and part of his redeeming work in us is that we are blessed in the here and the now and we're blessed in the heavenly places when Christ comes again. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for us. We're blessed with that all by grace. Thirdly, let's talk about this, our reliance upon God's word. Our reliance upon God's word, is, is that really here in this passage? You might, you might wonder, legitimately so. But verses 10 through 12, they're probably indented in your Bible or set apart in some way. It's because they're a quotation from the Old Testament. A quotation from Psalm 34. Now, before we look at what that psalm says what this quotation means I, I think it's important for us to ponder why it's there ever wondered why the new testament quotes the old if the new testament's inspired inerrant and the apostles wrote with god's authority they didn't need to write they didn't need to quote the old testament did they why did they well one it shows solidarity with the old testament it shows that this thing of Christianity is not something brand new, but it's part of a whole. It's not coming out of nowhere. It's one big plan. In the old, there's promise, and in the new, there's fulfillment. And they're tying it together by quoting the Old Testament for us. They're also teaching us how to read the Old Testament. That's the second thing. A third thing would be that, yes, they do quote the Old Testament at times to bolster a point that they're making to give some credibility to what they're saying. They write as an apostle, yes, but still, it, it helps the case to be able to say, I'm saying this, and as David said, and then you quote David, King David of old, or I'm teaching you this, as it says in Scripture, and then you quote the Old Testament. But here's another reason why the New Testament quotes the Old, and one I hadn't thought about before, and it's really what we're getting at in this point, point three. I think Peter quotes the Old Testament here to demonstrate for us Bible saturation, Bible memorization, Bible meditation, Bible use. You see, the New Testament Bible writers were first Old Testament Bible readers and soakers and meditators. So they can't help but quote it. It's in them. It's on their brain. It can't help but come out. As Spurgeon said, their, their common everyday language was bibline, full with Bible. So as we come to this, Peter's longest quote of the Old Testament, verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter 3, we can't miss the fact that he's showing us a model or demonstrating for us what we Christians should do with both Old Testament and New Testament. We should think of passages. We should run our minds through them. We should see their relevance for the situation. We should seek to apply it. We should rehearse and quote and exult in it and, and remind ourselves and others of it. 
Because the word is our milk. Remember that? Chapter 2, verse 2. It's our milk. We're nourished in this thing of the Bible. Satisfied in it and growing in it. So we long for it. And we use that word to stir up our thoughts and our affections of God. We use it as a compass to get our brains thinking aright. And Peter's been doing this with Psalm 34, not just in one quote, but a lot. Listen to this. Listen to how much Psalm 34 and 1 Peter relate. The theme of sojourning is in both of them. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 34 reads like this. He delivered me from all my sojourning, all my travels. And that's what 1 Peter is all about, sojourns and exiles. There's the theme of opposition, both in Psalm 34 and in 1 Peter. Many afflictions is a phrase that they both share. There's so much in both about trusting the Lord and fearing the Lord. The phrase, never be put to shame, is both in 1 Peter 2.6 and in Psalm 34. And in 1 Peter 2.3, taste that the Lord is good is just a shortened, abbreviated quotation from Psalm 34, verse 8. And then you have that big quote, which is our passage for today, verses 10, 11, and 12, quoting Psalm 34. Now, why is Psalm 34 on Peter's mind like this? Why is he just oozing Psalm 34 as he writes 1 Peter? Well, Psalm 34 was written by David when he was on the run from King Saul. He was sojourning. He was exiled. He'd been promised God's kingdom, and yet he couldn't even be in the city. The promises looked bleak. His life was certainly threatened. Cave to cave to cave he went, and hiding he did. And then he wrote Psalm 34 about his trust in God. God's care, God's nearness, God's seeing, God knowing, God fulfilling his promises, being near, protecting, and delivering out of all his sojournings. Can you see how Psalm 34 would be particularly relevant to what Peter's writing about in this letter here, writing to these Roman Christians who feel like they've been exiled, cast aside, they're traveling through now, everyone's against them, their life is threatened, the promises seem to be, what? Really, is this what we are going to get? They're surprised by suffering? But just as the Lord delivered David out of all his troubles and sojournings, Peter's saying, the Lord will deliver you out of all your sojournings. There is an end. If there's no deliverance until the day of death or the day of Christ, there is still deliverance. You get that? Just as David could praise God in the midst of this turmoil and difficulty and opposition, just as he pondered God's truth and trusted in God. So these people in the first century getting this letter from Peter can do the same, and so can you. We have a great heritage of those who ruminate on God's promises and stir up faith and confidence 
We are a people who rely upon God's word. Fourth, Peter turns now to the reasons to trust and obey. The reasons to trust and obey. Verses 10 through 12, really we just talked about why they're there. We didn't really talk about what they say exactly. But verses 10 through 12 show us reasons to trust him and obey. Like Obey him in what he said before. Both the, the unity stuff and sympathy, brotherly love in verse 8. And not repaying evil for evil, but instead blessing. All that. We should obey and trust him for several reasons. Verse 10 tells us because we want to love life. Right? Don't you want to love life? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, he should guard his tongue. He should seek peace and pursue it. He should not pursue evil. Desiring to love life and see good days. You see bumper stickers that say love and life or t-shirts, love and life. Great thing to pick up at a Vegas gift shop, right? Loving life, unless you lost some money, then you're hating life, I guess. People talk about having good days. Did you have a good day yesterday? Was it a good day? I hope you have a good day tomorrow. What do we mean by that? Hope everything goes all right, no one gets hurt, everything just goes smoothly, and maybe you find 50 bucks in your pocket you didn't know about. Bonus, good day. Older folks reminisce about the good old days. But David first wrote of these phrases, love and life, and good old days, when he was on the run for his life and living cave to cave, when it looked like the promises of God were about to be void. When he was exiled from his homeland. When the promises were at least on hold. He talked about love and life and having good days. And Peter quotes these phrases for people who were maligned, cast out. Peter himself was about a year or two away from being crucified upside down as he wrote about love and life and having good days. What kind of love and life is this? What kind of good days are these? Well, they're ones that are both now and, say it with me, not yet. Here's the now, back in chapter 1, verse 8. You don't see him yet, but you love him. And you love him and rejoice in him with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Those are good days. That's love and life. The not yet is verse 13. Prepare your minds for action and be sober. Be ready. And set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus comes back again. That's the not yet. Those good days of now, of loving Jesus and rejoicing in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory will be nothing compared to the good days and how we will love life when Jesus comes again. The promise of the gospel is that we can love life and see good days regardless of the circumstances, the opposition, the pain, the persecution, he is better than life. He's better than life. We delight ourselves in the Lord. We taste and see that he's good. So we can see and know and experience what David did in Psalm 34, or even more than David did in Psalm 34. We've got more Bible. We know more of the story than he did. 
We share the same Lord, and we long for his presence. Love and life and good days, that has to do with the Lord's presence and care, and that's why verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. This is the greatest thing in all the world that cannot be taken by armies. That the Lord looks upon us. He sees, he knows, he cares, he's there. It's not outside his reach. It's not that he isn't seeing. In fact, he hears us when we pray. Not because we pray so well or pray as often as we should. Not because we pray the right prayers. He hears us when we pray because of Jesus. Because that high priest made a way into the holy of holies with a sacrifice pure and eternal, we can follow behind him boldly to the throne of grace and go to him with requests for help in times of need. And yet we also tremble at the reality This last phrase, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we say, Lord, keep us, protect us, finish what you started in us. And we plead plead with the world around us. Don't let the Lord's face remain against you. But in faith, seek Christ. The forgiveness of sins, be reconciled to him. Flee from the wrath that's to come. Be saved. Love life with us. See good days. Trust in him. Know then that his eyes are on you and his ears are open to your prayer. And know then too that he calls us to live with each other in community. To overtly and officially identify ourselves with a local body of Christians who know us, who see our warts, who help us. And those we help as well. And we work together at the level of words. We work all this out even at the level of specific words. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from lying. Seek peace. Pursue it. This is God's high calling on our lives. This is God's high calling for us as a church. Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you for what we share in Christ. Sometimes it feels very small, what we see and what we share, what we know, what we feel, and how we act. Help us to know that you're in this. Help us to know that you could grow us by a mile in a minute if you decreed it. And let that not, Lord, comfort us in any sort of fatalistic way, but help us to trust you. We pray our confidence would be in you. And we thank you for whatever unity is in this church, whatever peace we share, whatever love is shown, whatever sacrifice is given, whatever humility is known and felt in our ranks, Lord, we thank you for it, we praise you for it, and ask that you'd help us to prize it more. Like Psalm 133, how beautiful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's refreshing, it's glorious, it's your plan. Help us now to sing for your help. 
to thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.